IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello, everyone, and welcome to IndieCast. On this show, we talk about the biggest indie news of the week. We review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode, we look ahead to some of the most notable indie albums of 2022. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, who from now on will be known as Crypto.com, Cohen. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Look, if, if, if a cryptocurrency wants to sponsor me, like I am not altogether opposed to changing my name. Um, I mean, Crypto.com, <laughs> Cohen? Like triple C, it, yeah, that, that would really, be kind of awesome, actually. That does sound awesome. I mean, uh, my, my fit. Uh, what's this, a, what, what's what, what's the minimum amount of money it would take for you to change your name to Crypto.com? Like of all the embarrassing things that I've said on this podcast, like I don't want to embarrass myself further by you know by 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 putting out there in the world like how cheaply I can be bought. Like it's. I mean, like, <laughs> would you do it for a million? Oh, would you need more than a million. Well. Maybe like one point one point one million, just to just to show my my hardball negotiation skills, because that's probably the. I'm just thinking of like Succession, where like one million dollars is the offer for just about anything. It's like uh, where Roman's like, "Hey, to the guy with the head tattoo, will you give me your pictures for a million dollars?" The kid, uh, I'll give you a million dollars if you hit a home run. I know the. Yeah. Mil- I know that's always the first offer for weirdos like that. So I'm just gonna yeah. say one point one to show. I'm coming to the table, uh, you know, and I'm not going to back down. Because I think it would be better for you than most people just because you have the triple C going on. Yeah. It, it actually, it, this is the consonants of the name. It sounds good. Um, and you also get to keep your last name. So, like, if you <laughs> ever have children, yes. you can carry on the Cohen name. Yeah. Maybe Crypto.com Junior. Yeah. They'll kick in another million. Yeah. Um, you know, I was thinking of, you know, because obviously we're referring to the Staples Center in L.A. is now going to be Crypto.com arena is yeah it's crypto.com arena uh it's terrible no it's Um, i think it's kind of uh is there is this like corporate poptimism that people are all of a sudden nostalgic for like a name like staples center i mean like i i just think of staples is like the place i would buy poster board and sour patch kids when i had a college project i needed to get well no i mean i think I, i think the rockism here would be people who are like uh, you know, I I want names like Soldier Field, right, or Lambeau Field, like the old school. That that'd be the rockism thing. I almost said Wrigley Field, but Wrigley Field was also corporate sponsorship, right? I mean, yeah, the, Wrigley's the, gum. <laughs> yeah, in, in Staples Center, it does sound like there was a guy named George Staples, you know, <laughs> that they named it after. You could you could suspend your disbelief enough. Where it doesn't necessarily have to be Staples, although I guess the Staples logo was yeah, it's in a, the. It's an extremely recognizable logo. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Um, but these names are getting so crazy that you just can't avoid the corporate connection. Like I was thinking about uh, the KFC Yum Center. I've been and, there. Uh, it's an incredible arena. It's in Louisville. Yes. Um, did that used to be called something else, or was it Probably. always the K? So I mean. <laughs> Maybe, you know, like my kids will venerate the KFC Yum Center the way that we venerate Wrigley Field because they just won't know any better. They won't know of a of a time where stadiums and arenas weren't known as that. <laughs> They'll romanticize going to, you know, oh, it's you know, crypto.com is uh, that's on my bucket list of, of arenas. <laughs> I, what, I, what I can't wait for is like inevitably when like say Fish or whatever jam band comes next like all the tape tater the tape traders talk uh, like in these hushed tones about like y'all do you remember the time when they played like uh te- like a 50 minute tweezer at crypto.com arena like See, they would have just said la they would have called the la tweezer they i, I was way out of my world, de- i was way out of my depth with that gag. yeah in the jam world <laughs> it, it, it's tied more to the city not so much the venue name so it would have been yeah the, the la tweezer Okay. And that would have been how they talked about the 50-minute tweezer. Um, one thing I, we, we got to talk about here yeah. is – because one of the big stories of the week was uh, continuing, like, vinyl controversy. Uh, you know, Taylor Swift put out the uh, re-recorded version of Red. She did? And they were, huh. Yeah, did you hear about that? Oh, that's fucking 
passed me by shit yeah apparently adele has a new record too uh out today i didn't yeah it's kind of weird that no one's talking about that um but i don't know if you saw that but there were all these reviews from taylor swift fans who were playing red at the wrong speed apparently it was (laughs) pressed that to play at like 45 rpm versus the standard 33 rpm so all these people were listening to red and it was uh uh much uh faster or i guess it'd be slower yeah i was about uh, to say like I, I never i i never remember whether putting it at 45 makes it faster or slower well it's supposed to be at 45 and i think uh, people were playing it at 33 so okay. it sounded slower. like uh black yeah it sounded like black sabbath it sounds actually pretty fucking awesome yeah it would be pretty heavy you know just drink a bunch of cough syrup and listen to red <laughs> be pretty awesome um but again, it just speaks to this uh, ongoing conversation about vinyl. You have people buying vinyl who might not necessarily normally buy vinyl, but it's the sat- the status symbol uh, that they're picking up. Um, I don't know. I-, I feel like we've talked about this. I still haven't written my big vinyl takedown piece. I think I'm going to be writing that in a few weeks. So look out for that, IndieCast Nation. But I don't know. It's funny to me with Taylor Swift because... Remember that period about four or five years ago where people were essentially calling her um, this like paragon of white supremacy? Oh yeah, two thousand two thousand seventeen, man. I, we look back on those times fondly, you know, like uh, when you know, hey, like, like punk rock's gonna be great again, and you know, <laughs> right. Priest is the most important band to emerge from the two thousands. Uh, I I think we have enough distance from that time to kind of sort of kind of laugh about it, but, uh, but she I, had this wi- she had this window of time though, like where she she fell from grace after Red, I guess, and then and then but she's totally come back from that. She totally steered out of that skid, tweeting through it. Yeah, and I remember there was a a, a concert review. Maybe I shouldn't say the publication. It was in a major newspaper. Ah. Um, where it was, a, it was a review of a Taylor Swift concert in like 2017, and the reviewer was taking Taylor Swift to task because she didn't publicly at this concert call out her white supremacist fans. That this reviewer thought that like Taylor Swift should have taken a moment <laughs> to like Richard Spencer, if you're out there, yeah, <laughs> don't buy my records. Yeah, like this which is I thought, scru- like this is like a screwdriver concert or something like that. I, which I, I thought that was the most insane thing I had ever read. That's uh, that's pretty amazing that. that it was in a. I don't remember this happening, but I mean, I remember that she was criticized for not having like an explicit opinion about the 2016 election. Nor right, Trump won because of Taylor Swift. Yeah, because she didn't endorse Hillary Clinton. Yeah, think of, uh, that think, was a narrative. Think of all the vinyl buyers that voted for Donald Trump that could have been flipped. <laughs> you know. <laughs> that's true and but that's something that i've in the moment it almost felt like oh taylor swift she had her day with critics <laughs> and now it's over and now um yeah, right like red got i mean red is this re-recorded red yeah has been reviewed at least as well as the original red if not more so more so i would say like um i would say that it's there, the I, I think that it's like now just like kind of understood that this is, I don't know, at least for the you know the modern public accommodation of like Joni Mitchell and Prince and um, you know this is like not going anywhere. Like it, I mean, I thought you know maybe there was a turn uh, when they when she made uh, what was that song Me with uh, Panic at the Disco. <laughs> like what? Right. Yeah, every time it would be like she'd release a, a lead single, people were like, oh, this is bullshit. And then it's like, well, she just, you know, she, through so, like some power of like, you know, just making records or just, you know, if you can't beat them, join them or just the the Stanhood uh, refusing to let go, like not going anywhere. And she's got a lot more albums to re-record, I imagine as well, right? Yeah, and you know, Am I wrong? I mean, look, I I understand. I, I watch what you that say, art- man, because maybe well, I was just gonna say <laughs> I, I I believe artists should, um, in a in a just world, they would have control of their copyright. They would they would own yeah. their own music. Although many of the most you know successful legendary artists don't own their own copyrights, it's a fairly common situation. But um, this narrative where she uh is like overcoming like this great sort of um 
you know, insurmountable odds by re-recording her albums. I mean, that seems to be something that's part of the narrative with these uh, redos that she's doing. Um, I don't know if I can buy into that yeah. as much. I mean, we're still talking about, um, you know, multimillionaires fighting multimillionaires mm-hmm. uh, over making still more multimillions of dollars. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, I will say that with this with Red... It is pretty cool what she's done with this record in terms of just reimagining the songs, where it does feel like a separate record and not mm. just like a a petty revenge scheme against Scooter Braun. Yeah. You know, like it seems to have an artistic reason for existing. So I can get behind it for that reason, but I don't know. I just the Taylor Swift discourse it just amazes me. I think this is like one of the great reversals of fortune that we've seen in the discourse. Yeah. In a long time. It just shows that she's a master of the discourse. No matter what you think of her as a musician or a songwriter, she's a discourse wizard, Taylor yes. Swift. Yeah, I look forward to that when we uh when we get the re recorded lover in uh twenty thirty one or whatever, and me <laughs> is like hailed as this uh counter like countercultural masterpiece. Maybe she'll redo it as we. Yeah. And it'll be more inclusive and then yeah. people will feel better about Re- getting it. Replace on board with Brandon Yuri with like Pete Wentz or some shit. I don't know. <laughs> um or just bring Phoebe Bridgers back. Yeah. Which right. by the way, speaking of Masters of the Discourse, like oh, Phoebe Lord. Bridgers got involved in Red. Of course. Like she was able to get into there. I mean, you know, she is another wizard of the discourse. Uh yeah. amazing move by Phoebe Bridgers. Um speaking of discourse. I feel like we need to talk about um, the 10th anniversary of Camp. <laughs> yeah, I the think chi- we do. The Childish Gambino record. Um, and really the 10th anniversary of your review of this record. Uh, you know what? Like, I, I, I've I, been dreading this day um, for, like, I, I haven't looked up. Like, I had not looked up when this album actually turns 10. Um, but I just knew this day was coming. And uh, you know how, like, old people can apparently tell when there's going to be like a storm coming when their knee flares up or something like that. Like I I just had a sense, you know, leading into this Monday that it was just going to be a bad Twitter day. And like, lo and behold, I mean, for many reasons, but lo and behold, I look at stereo gum and it says camp turns 10. Now look, I I, I just want to go. And should we just say quick for people that don't know that you reviewed this record for pitchfork in 2011 you gave it a 1.6. I gave it a 1.6. And here, a funny story about that is the day that it published, there was uh, this tremendous uh, out-of-nowhere storm in Los Angeles that pretty much knocked out all power. So that entire day, like until maybe 8 p.m., I was not able to access the internet. <laughs> and so you, when I get back on, it's like, oh, I, I, it appears that this uh, review has caused quite a stir. Look. I regret just about everything I wrote in there. Like, I think it was very um, dismissive of people's experiences. I would not have taken the same tone. However, the score stands. And I want to thank... I I, I kind of dodged a bullet with this one. I think most people at this point can recognize that this album is, it is that bad. Oh, hold on a second. Oh, I, I hear clacking oh. in the distance of IndieCast listeners writing in to talk about how much they love camp. Yeah, sure. I fine. know. You know what? I, I, I can there handle people it from out there, listeners. People out there who were 16 when that record dropped, <laughs> they probably still throw it on for nostalgia's sake. Yeah. I mean, Donald Glover called you out for that review, he didn't did. he? I mean, he did. He came after you personally. Yeah, I think, like, I can't, I think it was in Vice or something like that. He said, like, he saw... He saw me at Bodybuilder's Gym, which I did go to. I, I, I swear to God, I felt like I saw him one time at that gym because there are celebrities that did go there. And yeah. he's like, yo, if I see that guy, I'm like, he basically said, if I see him, I'm going to fuck him up. And, you know, of course, that's like. Uh, oh, come on, Donald Glover. Well, I mean, I, I, I. Why did. Well, but he said he saw you that one time. Uh, Why didn't he fuck you up then? Uh, I mean, maybe, I feel like. That was your chance, Donald Glover. I, mean, I, I honestly don't know, and um, I mean that—that's—it's an interesting nugget to keep in my head whenever people talk about like how you know this is America is this brilliant song or Redbone for that matter. I'm just like, oh yeah, that guy—that guy apparently uh, threatened to uh, fuck me up. 
Cool. What a what a feather in your cap. I know. Also, I think right there. one of the things I learned, uh, like from the from that uh, piece, which I you know I, I think the, the it was a well written piece, is that he, Donald Glover was like twenty seven when that album came out. Does that seem old or young? For no, that? old. <laughs> right. It seems like he should have made that when he was nineteen or twenty. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, I don't feel vindicated. I'm just like, I'm just glad that this event came and went without. You know, any uh, actually, I'm not even going to go any further. I, I, I am okay with how things turned out, and I do not like, I do not want to poke the bear as far as Taylor Swift nor Childish Gambino fans. Like, we are really treading on thin ice here. <laughs> well, what what's the deal with didn't he put out an album during the pandemic and then he pulled it immediately? Was, uh, did, yeah. didn't he that, do that? that? That sounds about right, yeah. That. I think that I'm happened. Not, that, no, it definitely happened. I just can't remember. Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, I wonder what the deal is with that. I think. I, what, yeah, I think what had happened is that he put out this album uh, shortly after uh, "This Is America," and it's just he pulled it. And it, it, it was. I think it was like one of the um, memory hold our memory hold albums of 2020. I think it was. If my memory serves, I think he put out a record right when things got shut down. Yeah. So just a terrible time to put out a record because mm-hmm. people are very distracted, and he, and I feel like it was up for a day and then it got pulled, and it's been radio silence ever since. I don't know if you know maybe I, I hallucinated that you know no it happened I, but I think that happened. <laughs> um, before we get to our mailbag, I was wondering is there a statute of limita- is there a statute of limitations on stories involving urine? Uh, on the show because Never. there was that brass there was that brass against story <laughs> yeah. where the singer peed on a person's face yeah the real pee tape <laughs> and uh, but uh, did we miss our window on that I feel like that's another <laughs> example of a great story yeah. dropping the day that we record yeah or the day that our episode drops yeah I think I think I I I really do think we we need to do an emergency like indie cast on that one or at least some bonus episodes I mean I just feel that for that artist. You know, now they're gonna have to do it. Like it's like with Jamiroquai, how the guy had to get that the, that like treadmill on the stage to replicate the virtual insanity video. Like they've just set the bar so high with that that you know they're like, oh, this is not what we do as a band. It's like, no, you're the you're the Rage Against Machine slash Tool cover band that uh, does staged uh, water sports on stage. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, because the singer, the, the 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 woman who peed on the fan. She, you know, put out a statement saying, this is not what we're about. You know, we're having a good time. Things just got out of hand. Like, what's the buildup to that, though? Like, what, like, where, like, what are steps A, B, and C that get you to D? Because I don't really, I've never been in a situation where someone was uh, matriculating on another person. Did you say matriculating? (laughs) That's a little bit of a uh, Big Lebowski reference. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, wanted, I, I, I called an audible in my head. I, I wanted to do a little shout out to the Big Lebowski okay. there. Yeah, um, I, think that's, uh, I think that's very well within the uh, indie cast uh, canon. <laughs> yeah, so... I, I'm the one who looks stupid for not being able to catch that reference. That's okay. It, it, it's a minor reference, but uh, I think people out there will appreciate it. Uh, but... From the video that was circulating online, I just didn't get a sense of the context of what was going on there. I don't know if anyone's done an investigation, like if Rolling Stone has dispatched three or four reporters to get to the bottom of like how this, uh, you know, disgusting event unfolded. I I don't know. I'd I'd be curious. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, But again, I I do feel like we're a little behind the times by talking about this now. That feels like an old story. I just wish that singers would urinate on people on monday or tuesday or even wednesday it would be more convenient yeah. for us yeah also, also the the, the story about the guy in tur- at the turnstile show who took a shit in the uh mosh pit that was also a weekend story that's true that's true yeah that's that's kind of a good pairing with this it's like the uh maybe that was the same guy maybe it's the same guy maybe the guy who shit the guy who shit in the uh mosh pit maybe he went to this show and compelled the singer to pee on him. It's, yeah. He's just sort of a, a chaos agent <laughs> of bodily functions at, at, at concerts. Uh, 
That's my QAnon theory for that, by the way. That's the, that's my conspiracy theory that it's the same guy, the turnstile shitter and the brass against, I guess, target of, of, of the <laughs> yeah. urine. Uh, let's go to our mailbag segment. I think it's time to time to segue out of there. Thank you again, all of you who have written into us. It's always great to hear from our listeners. If you want to hit us up, we're at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at IndieCast1. Always good to shoot the bull with you on Twitter or over email. Uh, you want to read this letter, yeah, Ian? I do. All right. So um, this is from Blake in Bellingham, Washington. If you're, you know, if your taste lean towards mine, uh, you automatically recognize where why Bellingham, Washington is so important to uh, me personally. Um, but Blake, it's a death cab, right? Death cab death for cab? cutie. That is correct. Anytime I meet someone who went to Western Washington University, uh, yeah, that's like, oh, yeah, Death Cab. And it's like, oh, oh okay, cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, most of the time they, they, they aren't familiar with that. Uh, ben Gibbard does not have a uh, dormitory named after him. Anyway, uh, Blake asks, with the new Big Thief and especially the new Mitski album announcements, it feels like the current generation of indie is reaching a point of saturation akin to 2009-2010 for thousands or aughts era indie, if you will. Artists that started out in their bedrooms, on Bandcamp, or in Philly basements are now genuine stars that dominate streaming, TikTok, and indie media coverage. You also have to mention the Phoebe Bridges and bedroom pop influence on modern white bread pop music, not to, not to mention Bridges' feature on the latest Taylor Swift re-recorded album as well. Many of these artists are still making some of the best music of their careers, but now in their third album or more with bigger budgets and many with Grammy nominations and mainstream coverage, they feel institutionalized in a way they didn't before. Is there truth to this feeling I have? Have we reached peak 2010s era indie? Is Mitski's new album going to be this generation's The Suburbs or maybe Reflector? And as expert trend hashers, where do you see the future of indie coming from? Do you see a distinct new generation of indie emerging from the underground or just more of the same? Uh, and of course, he mentions the fact that the new Mitski song has Dan Wilson of Semi-Sonic and Adele fame. So, Steve, how do you answer this? I mean, this question that cuts to the core of basically everything we discuss. (laughs) Well, and this is a good question for this episode because we're going to be doing some prognosticating on some of the big ticket indie albums that have already been announced for early 2022. So Blake, and again, thank you for writing in Blake. He's asking us to get the crystal ball out and, you know, predict where we're going to be headed here in the next few years. I mean, this question is, have we reached a point where the stars of the 2010s have hit their peak and are we on the verge of maybe seeing a new generation of of indie stars because you you and i have often talked about on this show about how a decade ago you started to see a lot of the aughts era indie bands start to fade a bit and by about 2013 there was this new generation mm-hmm. emerging and uh it's a it's an interesting question now obviously we we don't know the answer to this we're just going to be guessing um it does seem like we've hit peak singer-songwriter at this point, you know, where the most talked about artists, it seems like, are people, um, mainly women, who play acoustic guitars and write introspective songs about their lives. Mm-hmm. And it, that's a model that really exists in, I think, every era of music. You're always going to have some element of that, but there does seem to be a really strong focus on that at the moment. and. I don't know where we're going to be going with this. Part of me feels like, and I don't know how you feel, because just going back to 10 years ago, you know, I, I do remember, certainly in critical circles, that there was rumbling going on in like 2011 that, oh, there's too much conversation about indie rock. We need to refocus more on pop music. Yeah. And that started to reach critical mass a few years later, and that's the realm that we've been in since then. The thing that I hear, and I don't know how widespread this is. Maybe this is just like in my Twitter feed. You know, I always have to do that as a, <laughs> as a, uh, you know, as a caveat here before I, I say anything. I think on this show, but the thing I keep hearing is that things are too mild in indie, hmm. and that maybe there's going to be an opportunity for more aggressive music to rise. And you've seen, for instance, a lot of nostalgia for new metal. In the past few years, among younger people, 
people who didn't necessarily like live through the original era of new metal. Mm. Um, and you're seeing a lot of ba- hype for a band like Turnstile, who, I mean, I saw that they were on, there was a, a big GQ article about them. I think that was this week or it might huh. have been late last week. You know, they're, they're now getting that kind of mainstream coverage. I kind of wonder if in if maybe in a few years we're going to see more bands like Turnstile that have similar reference points to, you know, they, they've been likened to new metal in the past. I, I think that's like a little overstated, but they're certainly a more physical band, a more aggressive band. Maybe we're moving more in that direction after a few years of, again, more sort of bedroom pop type music, more introspective, more quiet music. Mm. If I was gonna make a guess, if you know, just going like with the pendulum swings from one extreme to another, I would tentatively make that prediction. But I don't know; it's hard to say. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think Turnstile is sort of an exception that proves the rule. In that, um, yes, they've elevated themselves to a point where they're going to be, you know, a mainstay on um, year end lists and they've already had a lot of people in the bag for a while because they just happen to be, they also happen to be a very fashionable rock band. Um, Maybe the fact that like we're slowly out of peak pandemic era means that people want to see bands more, but you know what, what, what I see is that maybe we are in the suburbs era where, you know, in a weird way, folklore is the suburbs with you know Phoebe Bridgers and the National being involved with the Taylor Swift album, where it's like a, it's kind of like a, a proof of concept for indie as mainstream music, and I don't think there's going to be like a reflector going on, but I, you know, at the beginning, I, I think what happened, what might happen, is that um, the flip side of people identifying so strongly with these individual artists in a way that they never did with say like animal collective or dirty projectors or grizzly bear or any of like what typified aughts era indie is that, um, I don't know, maybe people just kind of get bored of them after a while because at the beginning of this year, I would have bet any amount of money that if there was like a Lord or Casey chambers album, like that was going to be mortal lock for album of the year. Um, and they came back with albums that were, I mean, look, they're going to be fine, but kind of mildly received. And I don't think there's going to be any sort of like reflector type miscalculation happening. Well, Uh, but maybe solar power is the reflector, (laughs) you know, like the Lord record (laughs) from this year, that could be the reflector. Or is it, is it the centipede hurts maybe? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the record that comes after the the album that's really beloved, like if you want to call melodrama, uh, the suburbs in Lord's trajectory, um, or her Meriwether Post Pavilion, you know, it does feel like Solar Power is the less, uh, certainly less well received. Yeah. It, it it feels much milder. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to look at that, I mean, look, it's too early to tell, but I could see Solar Power being a bellwether. For a certain kind of critically acclaimed indie leaning singer songwriter record that might start to feel a little played out, you know, in the years. Because again, that's been like a pretty dominant uh, form of indie and, and critically acclaimed music now going on, what, like three or four years yeah. at this point? Or further. And yeah. yeah, and I just wonder, you know, if we look at music trends as being. A series of pendulum sh- of pendulum swings. If um, we're going to be maybe moving away from that a little bit, I mean, I I do think that you know, like when we talk about aughts era indie, you do have bands like say Grizzly Bear, who had their moment, and then it seemed like after the aughts ended, they they faded a little bit. Even though I think they still made good records, I like Painted Runes a lot and other albums that they put out. Um, but then there's also bands like The National who were able just to kind of carry on and become a, a legacy band. So it, some of these artists that were big time stars in the late, you know, uh, 2010s are going to are they're going to carry on and be perennial successes. But there will be other people that that fade a little bit. Yeah. And uh you know, I I'm just curious to see who that ends up being. Yeah. I think the interesting wrinkle though is that like Grizzly Bear all they could really do was make albums whereas, you know, Phoebe Bridgers or, you know, Japanese Breakfast or uh any uh, like any artist that you would say is uh, like typified 
of what we're seeing now is that there are so many other options for them to keep, uh, keep, you know, keep in, keep in their name in the uh, conversation. Um, and, but I think what, if any, if anything's going to topple what we see now, it's a, a new surge of young kids who associate Phoebe Bridgers or associate like uh, Mitski with like their older siblings. And, it they become I don't know similar to like what Bright Eyes might have been. Uh, it's like oh psst, that that that's some old people stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you know, there has been this younger generation of artists coming up who I feel like are referencing sort of less fashionable forms of '90s music and maybe even aughts era music, mm-hmm. uh, where it's not just about. Again, playing acoustic guitar and writing personal lyrics, it, it does seem to have more of like a pop rock bent to it, or more of an aggressive bent to it. I don't know. I that's something I'm I'm intrigued to see if that develops. I mean, you, I know you called Turnstile an outlier, but mm-hmm. you know, as their profile raises, I do see them possibly being more influential than they have been mm-hmm. now, and that there may be a crop of bands who like are aping what they're doing or taking what they're doing and, and moving in a different direction. I don't know. I'll be curious to see how that plays out in like two or three years, mm-hmm. you know, cause there's, cause there are like 19 year olds and 20 year olds who, you know, are hearing glow on right now. And they're seeing that there's a lane opening up for that kind of band mm-hmm. and they're starting bands right now. And they're going to be putting out records in a few years. And I don't know. We'll see. We'll yeah. see what happens. I, I, I'm curious to see how that develops. Um, this is a good transition into the meat of our episode because Ian and I, we're going to be talking about four records, some of which we've heard, some of which we have not heard, mm-hmm. but it's not going to prevent us from talking about them <laughs> and speculating on whether they're going to be good or well-received. And uh, what we're going to be doing is uh, we're going to be assigning each album a confidence rating. A scale of 1 to 10. Did you want to explain our confidence rating scale? Yeah, this is a completely original idea, which you'll see in no other uh, forms of trend hashing, especially not sports. But this is just a sense of, like, where's the vibe at? Like, how confident are we that this record will, uh, you know, A, be good, and B, be well-received? It's just where, like... Based on the singles, based on the general uh, discourse, like where are we with this album? So the first record we're going to be talking about is, I would say, maybe the biggest indie record that has been announced for early 2022, mm-hmm. um, and that would be Laurel Hell by Mitski. Am I right to say that? I feel like you know she put out Be the Cowboy. I think that was in 2018. That yep. was. Uh, a consensus choice, certainly among indie sites, as the album of the year at that time. And it feels like the table is set for her to really blow up with this record. Mm-hmm. It seems like she's moving in a more pop direction. That we mentioned she uh, co-wrote at least one song with Dan Wilson from Semi-Sonic. Uh, he's also, of course, worked with people like, like Adele and mm-hmm. the Dixie Chicks. So he's like a big-time pop-hired gun. How do we feel about her? Is she going to blow up with this record? I should say, I have not heard this album yet. I've only heard the singles. I've not either, yeah. You have not either. I, I don't know if promos have gone out for this album yeah. yet. So we're, we're we're mostly ignorant. We're only reading the discourse tea leaves yeah. with this album. Uh, so take our words with a grain of salt. This album might be great. It might be terrible. Uh, we're only really basing this on the singles and what we're hearing so far. But like, what, what's your take? Like, what, like, what, what, what's your confidence rating for the Mitski record? So I, I would put it at a six right now. What I feel like you, you, when you describe this is like whether it's going to blow her up. Like, I don't know if Mitski really even wants to get bigger, like, you know, to even like a Phoebe Bridgers level, because what we saw after Be the Cowboy was just some of the most, I guess, disturbing parasocial relationships between Mitski and her fan base to the point where I wasn't sure if she was going to make another record again. Um, and, you know, just uh, because it's like, why, like, this seems terrible. Um, you know, why would I put myself out there like that? So I do think this is out of the ones that we're talking about today, the most highly anticipated. Um, and I had this feeling that if she were to come back, it would be sort of like a Fiona Apple situation where she comes back like every five to eight years 
just being completely divorced from any sort of discourse and existing in her own planet. But four years after Be the Cowboy, this is just, you know, hey, the new, the follow-up to Be the Cowboy. Um, I So far with the singles, I'm not overwhelmed. I feel like they're a little bit, like, anticlimactic, particularly the new one, The Only Heartbreaker, which, you know, it sounds fine, but as, like, the... As far as like the the synthesizers and the lyrical themes, it just seems like Mitski lending her voice to um, a different, less distinctive songwriter's song. Um, and I, I I get the sense that maybe she's not going in as hard as she was on "Be the Cowboy" or "Puberty" too. Maybe as like kind of this necessary um, kind of this necessary defense mechanism where it's like I can't put myself out there personally as much on this album uh, as I did in times past because, you know, look what happened. So, um, I don't, I, I, I imagine this album will do fine. I imagine that people are just so excited to have Mitski back that, that this will be just kind of, uh, lauded just because, but I mean, I'm not like, I'm not excited to listen to it until the album actually drops because the discourse around her is just so fucking exhausting. Yeah, you know, I, I'm going to disagree with you a bit on whether she's going all in because I, I do feel like this album is being set up as a really significant record coming out in 2022. It's not a quickie follow-up to Be the Cowboy. She's waited four years to put out a record, so there's been quite a bit of build-up. I think, again, if you're going to work with Dan Wilson, who, you know, among other songs he's co-written are Someone Like You by Adele, just an enormous power ballad from, you know, the last decade. Um, he's not someone you call up if you just want to make a modest record that doesn't grow your audience. I mean, I, I, I do feel like she's ramping up to hit that B.B. Bridgers level. I think that she would love, for instance, to be playing on Saturday Night Live by the end of this season, you know, and maybe that will be, that will happen for her. Um, the only thing that gives me pause is the uh, is the Lord example that we were talking about before, because I feel like that album cycle it feels a little like this Mitski one so far. In that, you know, I agree with you. I think the singles are a little underwhelming. Like they're pretty good, but they're not knocking my socks off. It's not giving me the same alarm bells that some of those early Solar Power singles did. But but still, it's like you know, I'm not hearing you know best american girl yet you know i'm not hearing a song of of that caliber um and i want to say too that and i i I think i've talked about this before either on this show or maybe i wrote about it but i feel like be the cowboy was a record that benefited in a way from critics not giving as much credit to puberty too as they as they maybe should have Uh i mean that record i think it was number 15 on the passing job poll in 2016 it was number 18 on Pitchfork's year-end list that year. And those are two strong showings. But to me, like that is the ultimate Mitski record still. And if, if any album was going to get the like all-time treatment, I think that's the one that deserved it. And some of the praise for Be the Cowboy felt like a little bit like it was compensating for people maybe underrating Puberty 2 a little bit. Um, In a way, I thought Puberty uh... Puberty 2 was uh, a little bit of a makeup call for Bury Me at Makeout Creek, you know? Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, it depends on when you come in on Mitski. I mean, yeah. there, I think there are people probably out there that feel like her albums have gotten progressively weaker yeah. uh, over, over the arc of her career. Uh, but anyway, I still feel like there's a lot of love for Mitski. I do have faith that she will, I think, ultimately pull through with a good record. I mean, she has a really good track record. So I don't know if I actually gave my rating yet. I, I gave it a 7.5. All right. Um, and I would go higher with that. But again, like the Lord example gives me a little bit of pause at this point. Yeah. So anyway, excited to hear that record uh, and to find out if it actually is great or, or, or not great. Um, let's move on to the next big indie record coming out in early 2022 and that album is once twice melody Mm. by beach house beach house and you know you were saying earlier you were talking about the stars of the late 2010s and how they're going to progress in the new decade and you were saying like which artists will be looked at as older brother music or older sister music you know that Mm. will be tied to a generation more 
Um, and I have that similar question with, with Beach House because they've been around for a long time it's, at this point. I, debut album came out in 2006. Yeah, so you know they have they've they've been around uh, you know over 15 years mm. by the time this record comes out. Um, and I feel like for millennials, like millennial music writers, this is like one of the most praised and adored indie bands of like the last decade and a half. Mm. Um, but I wonder if we're now reaching the point where their albums are just going to seem like another album, you know, where it's like, they're good, but I'm not being knocked out by this band. Or are they a band that younger people like too? Like are the zoomers into beach house? That's something I don't have a read on. Uh, I mean, they make, chill out music that's very vibey and that kind of music is pretty timeless yeah um so maybe it doesn't matter but i could also see younger audiences just dismissing them as like a boring indie band Mm -hmm. i mean you could go either way with beach house i think that they are i think they're more um immune from having people like describe them as like boring indie rock because they don't really present as a rock band even if they do play guitars and keys and drums um yeah i i and i also don't think that it's in the same way that you would with like grizzly bear or war on drugs or the national like they it's hard to project anything bigger than the music itself on beach house so they are kind of immune to any like hot opinions one way or the other i have my, like based on what I've heard so far, um, I'm thinking like seven point five as far as my confidence rating. I I'm pretty confident this will be this will serve the purpose that Beach House albums do for me, which is something I can put on in the car when other people are in it or at the office or what have you. Um, and yeah, I I I, I would love to, the thing that I've always wanted to hear is like, what would a shitty Beach House album sound like? And this is kind of why an 18-song Beach House album is interesting to me because what it's either... They're really gonna, pushing it. Either it's going to be like a Beach House album that's like a typical Beach House album that's twice as long or it's going to be their like Sandinista or Melancholy where at like track 14 or 15, you start to get these like bizarre, weird and totally skippable experiments where you see what happens when they like totally get weird. I'm hoping that happens from the sounds of the singles. It's, it just sounds like maybe they're going more of like an air or stereo lab direction. I think it's great that they do the least amount of work possible to keep me interested. And I mean that as a compliment, (laughs) like, they make the smallest tweak to the Beach House sound. It's like Malibu Stacy getting the new hat. It's like, oh, hell yeah. Like, they, they, they've they shifted from this Twin Peaks sort of thing to this uh, stuff I worked at the Gap and stuff I heard of when I worked at the Gap in the late 90s. This is awesome. Yeah, I mean, the 18-track thing to me is a real risk because, well, it's a risk for me, and maybe it's not for Beach House fans because my, my take on this band is always that every record has at least two or three songs that I love and then the rest blends together in a monotonous, again, pleasant, but not terribly distinctive, massive sound. And expanding that to 18 tracks, it just seems like that tendency will just be exacerbated. So like you, I'm curious to see how that evolves. I have heard parts of this album. I haven't really dug in deep yet, so I'm not going to give a verdict on this record yet. We'll have plenty of time when this album comes out in February. But I have to say that with Beach House, I kind of feel like, oh, this is how some people feel about the war on drugs, huh. where, uh, you know, pe- some people hear the war on drugs and they think, oh, this is pleasant. It's nice background music, but it doesn't really hit me on any kind of real significant level. And I feel that way about Beach House. But I know that there's lots of people who love all of their albums, mm-hmm. who think that they're a very significant band. And... Um, feel a tremendous amount of emotion when they listen to them. So, you know, take my words with a grain of salt. For me, I'm going to give this about a 6.5 on my confidence scale. Just because, again, I think they're at a point in their career where there's a lot of Beach House records, and you have to justify why you're making another Beach House record. (laughs) And I don't know if they're going to be as distinct on this record as they need to be. But again... I'm someone who thinks all of their records kind of blend together. So I may not be a proper judge of that. Um, let's move on to our next record. And it's Big Thief. Big Thief. And I need, 
I need to uh, consult my notes here on the full name of this record. It's called Dragon New Warm Mountain, I Believe in You. And it's a it's another double record. Yes. 20 songs on this record. And uh, this is a record I got this yesterday. I, I got a promo of this yesterday. So I've gone through most of the record already. Uh, I will not say how I feel about it. I'll wait. I mean, I still need to figure out how I feel about it. But what's your confidence rating for this for this record? I mean, Big Thief. What, they're very. They seem to be a band that they're in their moment right now. Yeah, yeah I, I'm pretty stoked on this one because I was blown away by Little Things when it came out uh, a few months ago. Um, less so by some of the songs I heard them debut at Pitchfork Festival or some of the other singles, which kind of go for more of like the folky sort of earnest sound that they occasionally do and then uh time escaping the new single blown away by that as well and yes what 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 strikes me is that when i think about all they've released like five songs from this album thus far i think and the ones where they sound more like dave matthews band those are the ones that i'm like super stoked (laughs) for like i want them to go full tie-dye because the thing that has kind of kept me from like fully embracing them as a band I love, as opposed to one that like I simply like, is you know that they, they, they tend to get like super duper like you know faux deep hippy dippy about uh, their artistry and how they're just all limbs on the same organism. I want them to go full tie dye. Like I want them to be like to occupy this space like the Animal Collective sort of did, where it's like kind of pure indie rock, but also like. Just really silly press photos and like very like very hacky sack with it. Just like a, a thing where I can hear it and just be like it feel like it's kind of ambient jo- ambiently joyful. I know that's not a word, but um, <laughs> I love that way more than the you know the two hands uh, sort of sound where uh, you know, it's kind of like salt of the earth throwback. Also. I like the fact they're making a double album. Like, I'm hoping this becomes a thing uh, amongst the indie elite, like in the late 90s when uh, every rapper, you know, had to make a double album. Yeah, and I think unlike Beach House, I, I'm more uh, I'm more bullish on a Big Thief double record because I think that format, it, it suits them well. I'm excited about the idea of them, you know, really kind of sprawling out and trying a lot of different things. I, I really think... Big Thief has the potential to do that. I agree with you 100% on the tie-dye aspect of Big Thief. Um, you know, Little Things and Time Escaping, I think those are both great songs. Very jam bandy. I tend to gravitate to that side of what they do versus the more acoustic songs that sound more like Adrian Linker solo tracks. Yeah. Like the meandering so- like acoustic stuff, which is nice, but when I hear the band stuff, I just get a lot more excited about that. And based on my brief listen yesterday, I think that there is some really promising material in that regard on the new record. Um, My score for this is a nine, by the way, because I do think I'm, I'm excited for this record. I'm excited to listen to it more. And I just think that big thief there, it feels like their moment. I feel like they're going to get a lot of, good press for this record. And I think people are going to appreciate them taking a big swing here. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up quick, this is kind of a, a, a funny tangent, but I was on the podcast, uh, how long gone recently, which is a great podcast. If you don't listen to that. Um, and I was talking with uh, one of the co-hosts, Chris black. And he, he made this comment that like, I didn't think was like common knowledge, but he's not a music writer. So I feel like it's become part of this band's uh, narrative or, or conversation. But in our in our uh, in our episode, he was talking about how the New York Times hates Big Thief huh. and they won't cover Big Thief. And I think like you and I have probably like DM'd about that sort of thing. <laughs> but I didn't think that that was known out in the public or or thought to be like a, a thing with with with, with this band. But I mean, because you've heard that, right? I mean, um, it seems like there's like a weird big thief like bias at the New York Times. I don't know what that is. Okay, I think what happened is that like on Popcast, they just you know they're they're there's some of the more prominent names, I guess you would in in optimist leaning music criticism, and uh, you know they I think they said that uh, Big Thief was kind of boring, and it became like a controversy for like two days on Music Writer Twitter because no one ever 
uh, gives Big Thief even mediocre reviews. And look, I think that's like, uh, I would imagine that's an exception to the overall rule. I imagine if you like you survey people who read the New York Times and like Big Thief, they would assume New York Times loves Big Thief. And I think if you were to go in the New York Times and talk to people who would be inclined to like Big Thief, they would as well. So, I mean, I think I mean I know what you're talking about with that with that podcast uh, thing, but I, I I might be wrong, but I don't think they've like r- like ran like a profile of Big Thief. You know, I don't think they've like really even talked about them in in the newspaper proper. So I think that's part of the uh, the griping here. I just love the idea of like an anti big thief bias at the New York Times. You know, like people talk about really fucking liberal bias. You have liberal bias. You have big city bias. You got the anti big thief bias. Which is funny because they're a New York band, right? And they would, as you say, I would feel like the average New York Times reader would, you know. There'd be a lot of overlap with the Big Thief audience uh, there. So, I don't know. It's a, it's a funny thing. You know, I want to see Tucker Carlson go on Fox News and rail against the Big Thief bias at the New York <laughs> Times. You know, Joe Rogan, uh, you know, getting angry about Big Thief, getting slighted in the, uh, the mainstream media. Um, let's get to our last record. Yes. And uh, it's the latest record from Spoon. This record is called Lucifer on the Sofa. Do I have that correct? Y- Lucifer on the Couch. Or is it Lucifer on the... On the is... No, Lucifer on the Sofa. All right, is there it... we go. Well, I, I, think it's, I, I, think, I think it speaks very well to our uh, hype for this that we can't even get the goddamn album title right. Well, you know... Lucifer I on the Sofa. Am... Lucifer yeah, on I'm, the Sofa. I'm more into this album than you are. This album also comes out in February. I believe all these albums are coming out in February. So we're going to have a stacked February. Yes. On IndieCast. IndieCast uh, Q1 2022 is just going to be like, uh, like we're, we're, we're at the peak of our powers. So this is, um, it's a Spoon record. Sure Spoon. Is. This is their 10th record, believe it or not. Hmm. I mean, this is the most uh, veteran band out of all the acts that we've been talking about. A band that has survived many different trends and, and many different hashing of trends. <laughs> Over the course of like I think twenty five years or so, yeah, um, and they're one of those bands that they just seem to continue to get good press no matter what they do. They've got a really good following. Um, I haven't dug deep into this record yet, so I don't even have any you know vague impressions that I would you know share on this show. It's hard for me to believe though that. Spoon won't get good reviews and this album like won't at least be solid. I mean, to me, arguing against that is like arguing against gravity <laughs> or arguing that like the sun isn't gonna set in the west tomorrow. Uh it's just inconceivable to me. So, you know, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go high on my confidence score. I'm gonna go eight that this will be a good album that is well received. My my confidence rating is uh skewed by like was Hot Thoughts underrated? Like did people like that record? Keep talking. I'm going to Google the consensus on on uh, Hot Thoughts. Was that it, yeah, the last it, one? That was the one that came out in 2017 because 2017 it, it, this kind of loops back to the mailbag question. Pitchfork score of 7.4. Very respectable. All right. From from uh, from Pitchfork. All right. Yeah. So not, so not a best new music, but uh, you know, a veteran band, seven point four. Yeah. I mean, you you're not gonna kick that out of bed. Very solid. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I think with like Spoon, um, it's it, in a way that they're like it, it's they're so consistent that maybe they can be a little like overrated. Um, in a way, like because I mean, I don't remember can the last I, time can, I listened to Transference, for example. Um, can I just tell you, like like. Take a guess what they want my soul got from Pitchfork. I think that one was like really highly regarded. Eight point six, huh. best new music. That was the one with the song that sounded like Foster the People to me. <laughs> what um, song is that? Uh, Do you or something like that? It's the one with the uh, whistling in it. There's a song on there called Inside Out. That nah, that is, one's a good uh, song. But there's like that's it, a good song. I was just gonna say they're covered by the hot young jam band Goose. Oh. Uh, you know, got to shout out Goose on there. They do a really good version yeah. of that song. But, you know, as far as like my yeah, my excitement for this record, um, they talked about how they were going to get, like they're going to make a down and dirty rock album. We connect with their Texas roots by getting into ZZ Top. And, you know, the first single, by the way, terrible video, like just unbelievably bad. Um, and the song itself sounded to me like 
the difference between them and the Black Keys or like latter day Queens of the Stone Age was imperceptible. Like this just sounds like uh, baby driver music where you see like, it's like, oh yeah, this is like, you know, real rock and roll right here. It's like, uh, you know, it's like leather and, uh, you know, like uh, whiskey and like uh, weird looking hats. Um, yeah, to me, it, it just, it, it, it fell so flat for me. But then again, like maybe the record itself, like also, and this is going to be like super nerdy shit. Like I am so outside of the zeitgeist. I am like, I have so little juice as a music writer that when I get a big time non-emo record in advance, I'm like, this record's definitely in trouble. I got the spoon record. So <laughs> man, you've been sharpening your knife for the spoon record for a while. I feel like by the time we get to fifth, I like spoon, man, but you're you're gonna you're gonna be ready to go. It's gonna be like the beginning of Gangs of New York, like where they're just getting ready for a street brawl. Yeah, because, I'll probably uh, end up liking it. Who the fuck I man? don't know. You've been you've been queuing up on the spoon record. I don't know. I uh, I'm not gonna dispute anything you just said, but again, the it's like saying Tom Brady's not going to make the playoffs. I, I, I'm not going to bet against them until I actually dig into the record and I see the bad reviews. Then I'll believe it. But other than that, you know, Tom Brady's going to make the playoffs and Spoon is going to make a well-regarded, <laughs> solid album. I think the, so, I think we'll the person who's, like gonna, who's excited enough to review the Spoon record is probably going to like it. So, yeah. Uh... Yeah, whether or not it like you know goes the distance as far as like being uh, thought of in the upper echelon of spoon albums, well, I think there is more to be said. But once again, I I you know I need to uh, listen to the spoon record uh, rather than just doing what I usually do, which is listen to RXK nephew uh, YouTube's. <laughs> All right, we've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so today on Up Rocks, I have an interview running with uh, Steve from this band called Avlov. They have a new record called Buds out, and man, I am excited for this interview. Um, a, I like the record, but we get into a lot of very interesting tangents, particularly about uh, a Hare Krishna rock album that he made with uh, Murph from Dinosaur Jr., not going to spoil it, but I'm very proud of it. Steve's an incredibly cool guy. Um, Avlov is a band that, if you that name itself is kind of a throwback to the mid 2010s when uh, I mean it's still ongoing, but the rise of New England indie rock, like as uh, you know, Steve himself said, the dream of the '90s alive on exploding in sound. Bands like Pile and Krill and Avlov, and uh, they've called this their green album which just kind of shows how indebted they are to indie rock uh, from the not, no Weezer's not an indie rock bound, but you know what I mean? But it's um, you know, it's just like fuzzy, catchy dinosaur junior style rock songs, but without as much fuzz and it's eight songs, 28 minutes. Um, if you ever, like, if you just think like, Oh, what does indie rock sound like? You put on buds like, yeah, okay. That's indie rock right there. So um, it's good to see them back. Um, and their new album, which is out today, not, maybe not my favorite. I think Am is, uh, is just the most iconic of the bunch, but this is, uh, I'm just glad that Avlov is still making records. So the band I want to talk about is called Pillow Queens. It's a band from Ireland and they don't have a new record out. They put out their debut album in 2020 and I'm talking about them now because I feel like I'm still playing catch up on young indie bands that put out their first record in the early days of the pandemic because i just feel like i was in a haze the whole world was in a haze and there were i think a fair number of records that just fell through the cracks and uh i feel like it's better late than never to talk about this band uh because i've really been enjoying their record it's called in waiting that came out last year and this band ended up on my radar because Wild Pink, which is, of course, a band that Ian and I talk of a lot about on this show. They recently recorded a cover of this song called Brothers, which is the ninth track on In Waiting. And, you know, I think the easiest way to describe this band is to say that they once recorded a cover of Dreams by the Cranberries, another Irish band. And I would say that Pillow Queens owes a lot to the Cranberries. There's a similar 
melancholy, jangly rock vibe to what they do. A little bit more of an aggressive edge, a little bit more, I think, punk rock than the Cranberries were, but definitely slotting in that same area. And uh, In Waiting, again, it's a record that I missed last year, but I've really enjoyed catching up on. And uh, Pillow Queens, a band that I'm curious to see what they do next. So definitely check out that record, In Waiting. It's a year old, but it will probably be new to you, just like it was to me. Um We've now reached the end of our episode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 